Hello, this is Todd Littleton with ToddLittleton.net, ThePastorTheologian.com, ThePastorTheologian.net. Just three of the places where you can connect with Pathological Podcast for the Pastor Theologian. If you've not yet subscribed, you can do so on the website right there in the center. You'll see the buttons for Stitcher or for iTunes. And we would really encourage you to do that. Uh, As always, we'd love you to share what's going on here. It's new for us. We've uh, relaunched, refocused, renewed kind of uh, our our, uh, interest, our passion. Had some great things upcoming, as we noted in a recent podcast. Uh, Today on the podcast, we're reprising an interview with Natalie Burris. And Natalie is a uh, lawyer in the Chicago area, a friend of mine. There are more details about uh, her that will uh, come through on the reprised interview. Don't want to rehash those. What I want to get to is the the themes I want you to pay attention to. And rather than try to tell you, here's what you need to, uh, how you need to make the connection, how would you make the connection when you hear the term intersectionality, derailment, when you think about power control, when you think about dynamics within an organization, an institution, or even in our uh, community or world, want to know what you do about uh, voice and whose voices you listen to. These are all things that are really important uh, for the pastor theologian to uh, pay attention to. It's not really about the pragmatics of how do we get something done. If we're talking about people, there's more to it. There's more involved. So without any further ado, uh, stay tuned. And remember, share the podcast. Share uh, with your friends. Share with those you think who might be helped by uh, the subjects, the themes that we address here on ToddLittleton.net. Thanks. Today on the podcast, I'm glad to have Natalie Burris. Natalie is a friend of mine. We've known one another for a while. She actually graduated from high school in the small town in which I I pastor at Snow Hill Baptist Church. And uh, I'm going to let her fill in some blanks. Uh, One of the the better uh, young thinkers I've ever run into. And uh, it's always good to have a podcast where you have people and they're smarter than you. So this is one of those. And I'm really glad, Natalie, you're on with us. Wow, thank you for having me, Todd. Um, I don't know about the part about me being smarter than you, but... <laughs> well, um, we'll, let, we'll let listeners decide that one. Hey, Natalie, before we kind of get into the subject that we've, we've talked about, um, won't you tell us a little bit about you? And I like to give those I interview the option to go back as far as they care to or be as recent as they want to. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, give us a little context, and then we'll take off on... Uh, uh, a number of subjects. Sure. Um, I grew up in Tuttle, Oklahoma, um, which, as you said, was a small town. Um, I was very involved in the Southern Baptist Church, um, very involved in the youth group. Um, I was very, in- and still am, interested in theology. Um, you could find me as a 15-year-old girl with my nose in a John Piper book. Um, and as a teenager, I felt called to the ministry Um, which being in the Southern Baptist um, Church, my options were fairly limited. Um, So I got interested in foreign missions, which brought me to applying to Wheaton College in Illinois. And there I studied anthropology. Um, But by the time I graduated, I had sort of moved away um, from the faith of my childhood. I um, grew more cynical a little bit more disillusioned, I guess, with the um, faith that I grew up with. So I didn't end up going into the mission field at that point. Um, I actually inadvertently ended up blogging sort of the journey over the years. I started blogging when I think it was 2003 um, and sort of inadvertently recorded my journey of how I grew um, a little bit more disappointed with, with the faith that I grew up with. Um, Ended up right after graduating at Wheaton at a nonprofit where I learned about um, low-income immigrants and refugees, and I learned that I enjoyed helping them out in terms of immigration, the immigration process. So I ended up going to law school, uh, got my law degree from DePaul University in Chicago, and I've been practicing uh, almost three years. So I'm not yet able to practice um, immigration law. I'm not in that field yet, so I'm I have a pretty boring job. Just, I'm just a civil litigator. Not very exciting. Um, but I'm still very interested in those issues of immigration and um, the issues that I learned about studying anthropology and studying 
critical race theory and intersection intersectionality in law school. Um, so I'm still as a layperson, even though I'm not theologically trained or I don't have, you know, the academic credentials, I'm still very interested in those um, areas and specifically how they relate to the church in the U.S. Fantastic. Let's uh, let's play a little bit with that to get into kind of our subject. And it's ironic that you described feeling called to ministry in uh, Southern Baptist Church and felt uh, the a, a sense of really a narrow limiting uh, of your options. I, a young friend we both know, uh, went over to our local Baptist university and really excited about the call in her life to be involved in ministry. And she went to the table at registration and said, this is what I'm really interested in. I want to lead worship. And they saw that she was a young girl and they said, well, great, we've got just the program for you. We'll help you get into leading worship at women's conferences, at women's meetings, and those sorts of things. And she said, that's not really kind of what I have envisioned. I'm talking about in church. Yeah. <laughs> and there wasn't really kind of a, a, a place for that. So she's not, she's not there anymore. Um, and, and probably for good reason, uh, but is really involved in leading worship, led for us a couple of weeks ago, and uh, did a great, great job. Yeah, it's interesting the things that I was told, which, and to clarify, I don't have any like hard feelings. They were all people that I love dearly and that were well-meaning, but I was told, um, oh, I mean, I was a 14-year-old girl, and these were the things that were being told to me, oh, you're, you're going to marry a pastor, <laughs> like that's that's what it was in relation to my husband my call was um and I didn't feel that way um even as a 14 year old where I hadn't been exposed to the you know some of the more feminist ideas I, I I didn't want my call to be in relation to the man I was going to marry I felt a distinct call um so yeah I know I know the feeling of our our friend <laughs> well you know and that gets really to kind of the first thing we we kind of kicked around to talk about and that was like who gets to have a platform and and so if uh, anybody, no matter uh, race or gender or social location, uh, only has access to a platform by virtue of an um, auxiliary relationship or an adjacent relationship, then they're always subject to being allowed to speak or allowed to have influence. And I think that this is a real, a, a real issue with a number of the young ladies that uh, I know and have had the privilege to talk to about this particular experience in, I'm going to say, you know, the more conservative evangelical denominations, because it's not just Southern Baptists who have a, this particular um, vision of, um, well, you're going to go get your MRS degree at seminary, and uh, that's kind of how back when I was, you know, going to seminary a hundred years ago, that's kind of what everybody thought was, was going on every time they saw a young lady, she's there to get married. Right. Uh, so it, it fits. And I didn't detect any, um, you know, hard feelings or ill will. I, I think that um, maybe it was, um, Oh, I forget the guy who wrote uh, on the Canterbury trail. Um Oh, it'll come to me. Anyway, he, he talked about three stages of the experience of faith where you have the faith you're given, you have the faith you doubt, and then the faith you embrace. And so um, in his description of his personal, you know, narrative, he wasn't uh, describing any animosity to the faith we get in our childhood, but does recognize that that does face challenge and doubt until the place in which we, as you described it, well, I, you know, I... I've moved to a different place. Uh, and, and so, frankly, I'm glad, so if that's okay with you, I'm glad you have, uh, because your writing has been really um, helpful for some of us who really need to move out of that particular uh, framework. So, Thank you. I'm glad for that. So when we, talk about, when we talk about platforms, we talk about access or opportunity to be heard, you've been thinking through an idea um, about how 
how it works when, let's say, a woman or a minority has been uh, talking about a particular subject for a long time. And then along comes John Stewart in the aftermath of a number of, uh, uh, pl- let's say, police shootings where the victim was a young black man or um, even a black man my age. And um, he really takes to task some of the really deep uh, racial uh, feelings. And we share that video all over um, every social media channel we have. And yet someone else of of color, for instance, has been saying the exact same things, but nobody listens. What what do you think is behind that? Yeah, um, I I have to give credit or else I will be um, stewarding, ironically, um, the person who coined this term. um, It's Trudy. Um, Her name's Trudy. Her handle is The Trudes, um, T-R-U-D-Z on Twitter. She's a black woman who pointed out that all over her social media platforms, this video from The Daily Show was going viral and it was mostly from her white friends. And the actual substance of the video was great. It there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. John Stewart was pointing out, you know, that there is an issue with, um, with racism in the U S. Um, but the problem is people of color have been saying this for years and none of their videos go viral. Um, it, it was just a really, I guess, skewed response. Um, and she wanted to examine, um, why white people felt more comfortable sharing this particular video from Jon Stewart as opposed to sharing something that has been published um, for years, something that's been been pointed out for years by people of color. And it's almost as if as a dominant culture um, person, Stewart was sort of mediating the message for us Mm -hmm. or saying it in terms that we could quote unquote, understand. Um, and I, I understand there's value in a, um, someone like John Piper, um, coming forward and talking about race. I realize there's value in coming from your own context as a white person and speaking up about certain issues. But, um, so when Russell Moore, um, spoke out about taking down the Confederate flag, he was praised. And I understand that that's coming from a context of a denominational leader, coming from a denomination that was originally formed because didn't want to oppose slavery. That's that in and of itself is a big deal, but it just struck me as really interesting that a white man in 2015 who writes an article about taking down the Confederate flag got so much praise when people of color have been rallying for years to take this down. It just seems like there's some sort of a disconnect there. Um, and who gets the opportunities to speak up about that. Um, I actually sort of ended up on the same, <laughs> in the same situation as the John Stewart's and Russell Moore's and uh, John Piper. Um, a few years ago, a piece that I wrote about Trayvon Martin um, on my blog was picked up by the Huffington Post. Um, I was essentially criticizing white evangelical responses or lack of response to his death. And of course, I was thrilled when I got the email from the editor, but it didn't sit well with me after the fact. Um, the piece was featured on the Black Voices page, and after that, I was given access um, to become a quote-unquote HuffPo blogger. So in and of itself, yes, I was excited about um, being featured for that, but I still felt a little unsettled by the fact that I, as a white person, was writing about this and getting picked up by a prominent website when others, again, have been saying these same things about evangelical silence or white silence in response to um, these acts of violence or or racism. Um, They've been saying those things for years. So when I raise this critique, I come from a place where I've actually been perhaps a voice that maybe drowned out some of the other voices, or maybe I was given a platform that perhaps maybe I wasn't entitled to. Um, what I probably should have done is pointed this editor to some other bloggers who more eloquently said what, what I wrote and who were 
who actually should get the credit for a lot of things that I write. Um, Ephraim Smith, he's a pastor, I believe out on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, he has great blog posts um, critiquing the white evangelical church. And a lot of what my thought process comes from comes from him and what I've read from him and from Soong Chan Ra and all of these voices, which I do take very great care to credit. But as a white person, you know, even though I am a woman and I have faced disadvantages um, in terms of gender, as a white person, I have a responsibility. I have to be very careful um, to give up um, my platform or to ensure that it's not just my voice as a white person that's heard. Um, so I guess that's where I'm coming from. You know, when you see a John Stewart video go viral, um, it's just interesting. I always wonder what would happen if those who do have the positions of privilege and power, who have the TV shows, who are the dom- denominational leaders, who have the book deals, what would happen if they, I guess, paved the way and gave more opportunities to some of the voices out there that we don't get to hear or see as often? No, I think this is a great point. And uh, while uh, I actually remember your Trayvon Martin. Really? Remember that. Oh. (laughs) And I think probably you're uh, being very gracious in making sure that we understand that in uh, current dominant culture, white tends to cover, but we, we can't escape the fact that it's still generally male. And so maybe we could look at what HuffPost did and what really drew them was that here's a white woman saying that. And maybe it was a bridge voice rather than um, an attempt to obscure other voices. Um, maybe it was also a move where those who were on the Black Voices channel could be encouraged by a, a white woman who was saying this where they might not have been so well um, to respond had, say, I written a piece like that. Right. And I think that's where intersectionality comes in. Um, so an, an intersectional analysis is taking into account gender, race, gender identity, whether you're trans, um, cis, uh, disabilities, whether you're able-bodied, your income level. Um, so it doesn't, you can't just look at one thing, whether it's race, just race or just gender. Um, and I, as a white woman, am both, you know, oppressing, to, to use that term, I'm both oppressing others and I'm oppressed. So I'm sort of at an intersection at, um, and because of, you know, I'm straight, um, middle class, you know, I have a graduate degree. So there's, you can be privileged and not privileged at the same time. Oh, yeah, you're definitely right. And what I like about the whole description of an intersectionality is another way we could talk about it is, how we understand the varied pieces that make up our context. It's not just, it's not just a singularity. So it's not just that you're white. It's not just that you're middle class. It's, it's, it's all of these stories that kind of converge and, you know, form and shape responses or lack of responses as, as is the case that you were pointing out with this uh, post that got picked up by Huffington Post. So I think that's a, I think that's really important. So, if you were going to uh, try to describe um, a, a way to take some proactive um, move to uh, create space for those voices, what would be some suggestions you'd have or some thoughts you've had about that? Oh, definitely. Um, I feel like every year for a while there was a big uproar um, when the top Christian blogs or top ministry blogs would be published. Um, I guess it's the church relevance blog that would post this every year. And every year, the same critique would come out that the majority of the blogs, the vast majority were written by white men. Um, so I've responded, um, to both, you know, the up, both to the release of the list and to the, um, critique and, um, have offered some suggestions because, a lot of the people who compile these lists or who put together these conferences that consist solely of um, men panelists or men speakers um, or white um, speakers, they're not uh, intentionally meaning to do this. 
it comes down to who's in your network. Who are you reading? Who do you follow on Twitter? Um, whose blogs do you subscribe to? So if you're a white, straight Christian man or woman, um, take a look at your blog reader. Take a look at the people you follow on Twitter. Um, do they look like you? Do they speak like you? Do they have the same education level? Um, take a look at the books on your bookshelf. Um, the I guess last week there was a, a bit of a uproar on Twitter about a relevant magazine article. Um, it was the top books you should read before you turn 25. And I don't know if you saw that, but almost all of the authors were men. And even the women, the few women that were mentioned, I think were almost all white women. So they were, and the thing is they were all great books. There was nothing wrong with the books in the list, but it received a lot of critique because there are also a lot of really great books by people of color and by women that completely get missed. Um, so taking a look at the books you read, um, the conferences you attend, the authors that you like. Um, I have a book reads challenge I'm trying to do. Um, it's an embarrassingly low amount. I'm trying to read 40 books this year. <laughs> but um, And I noticed that a lot of the authors on the books I've read were women. And I was really happy about that because I didn't set out intentionally to try to read books written by women this year. But I think because I've built that up in the past and have started that intentional process that I just more naturally became aware of books that were written by women. Um, so be, if you're, if you're organizing a conference or publishing a magazine or whatever it is, or if you're just a lay person who's reading blogs, um, if you just go with the status quo and go with the flow, you're going to end up with uh, a blog role who looks like you. So it's going to take intentionality um, to take those steps, to seek out people who, uh, who are different from you. And Twitter is a great resource. Um, I, I'm a listener on Twitter. I don't really tweet a lot, but I follow a lot of people, um, a lot of people of color. And it has been such a learning experience. And sometimes it's not comfortable. I don't, I don't feel comfortable with some of the things people are pointing out, but it's, it's been a really great experience because of where I'm situated in the Chicago suburbs, you know, I'm not around a lot of people of color. So it's been, I definitely recommend just following um, diverse people on Twitter to sort of get, um, get a different perspective on things. Uh, all those, that, those are great recommendations. In fact, just to just to talk about kind of a, a bit of a progression, I, I remember since I know you've had some friends that uh, worked for IVP, um, I I remember uh, when I was in college and seminary, and I was told about how to build a library, and at the time, uh, you were told you would be able to tell the features of the book that it would be the perspective. Uh, of the author, theological perspective, etc., based on publisher. And so we were given this spectrum list of, of from most conservative to most liberal. And I'm always kind of nervous when someone comes into my uh, office where my books are, because it would it, there's a bit of uneasiness when I notice someone is looking over my books. Because they're way different than things were then. Right. And, and then I'm right now reading a, a book by Catherine Keller. First, a book I've read uh, by Keller. I've listened to some interviews. Her writing is incredibly lucid. It is, it is vivid. Uh, her theological uh, creativity is refreshing. And it has been, um, you know, motivated and prompted by some conversations with some fellows who are outside of, you know, my denominational background. And I think that when you say you have to do that intentionally, it, it, you do have to do that intentionally. It's not something that uh, it, if you just say, well, I'll get around to it, you never will. And you'll right. then continue to be formed by the very things that you've been formed by, which is to say you'll just be the same. 
And so I really like that recommendation. I like the Twitter uh, thing also. I, I saw someone do what you described also with Facebook. So since Facebook, some people treat it like, you know, I'll friend everybody. Um, if, you're, if you're still selective with who you follow because your algorithm that uh, Facebook uses will actually put up, you know, uh, those you tend to follow, interact with, read, like most, and then offer you others that are similar. And if you don't have any diversity in that algorithm, although now I think Facebook now is actually, for every post you like, they're actually offering you two or three opposing view uses option. I, I think I read that. And uh, I'm going to have to check it out. But I think I read that. And the, the consequence, of course, is that then you're forced actually to engage in places that you, you know, you never would. And uh, and I think that's actually a, a healthy thing, because as you know, in Tuttle, we don't run into too many people of color here. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and it becomes there's the danger of becoming an echo chamber. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's the, your, your beliefs get reaffirmed over and over if you're not exposed to any of any other ideas or any other perspectives. Um, I did want to mention, (laughs) um, not to bring anything controversial up, but I've noticed after like in the discussions about, uh, the recent Planned Parenthood videos that were released, um, I've noticed a lot of discussions on Twitter and on Facebook that involved all men. And I just, I think it's so interesting to see an entire like stream of conversation where men are discussing abortion. Like, I I don't know if women maybe are afraid or not comfortable joining in. I don't know what, what that's about. Um, But I always find it so interesting that (laughs) men who would never be in a situation where they would need to, decide you know what to do or discussing this it's it just intrigues me i guess <laughs> well I, mean, I, think, I think you have a point uh, i do think that um what what we see is um you know whether whether or not what a person takes a posture position pro-life it, it is true that the dominant voices uh, are male Right. And I think that goes, I think, you know, I don't know if this is the fitting place to kind of bring up what we talked about you know, before we turned on the record button. But I, I think this is a place where derailment has a um, a, a role to play. Um, because on, on, on both sides, left and right, there is some derailing that takes place when we begin to talk about either sensitivities or insensitivities to particular subjects. And I think it clouds potential conversations where we can really make some headway on a given subject. Let me, let me give you the, here's what I've observed Um, on, I think it's the gospel coalition's website. uh, Joe Carter, I think is who it is, um, has really been chronicling, uh, the Planned Parenthood thing, and um, mm-hmm. he was the first I saw to quote the law, and uh, you know, try to. I think he tried even-handedly to try to point out where some of the things that have generated concern out of these videos have actually been going on, and that there is some. Um, well, I don't know. If, he he wouldn't say wiggle room, but there's some question as to whether. What's taking place is actually a violation of all that, of course, is being mm-hmm. a thing that's debated. And and uh, um, and so, you know, you can you can then look at a site like, say, Mother Jones, and you've got a, a list of uh, counter arguments. And so it's interesting to watch these play out. And and I think honestly that there's some talking past each other because the the way it gets uh, themed on both sides, it is a, um, uh, the subject gets altered. So we're not talking apples and apples and oranges and oranges. 
and to me the problem is is that now that it's such a you know it's a, hot, it's, a it's a really hot topic then we start talking about the issues that you would be interested in um, and I'm not saying going out you I'm just saying to see that you no know, women are talking uh, as prominently or at least they're not showing up on you know, Facebook and the Twitter feed to the degree that we're seeing male voices I, I think that the, the minute you try to broach that and, and ask that question, the subject would get shifted or you'd get derailed. Does that make right. sense? Oh, absolutely. Um, someone, uh, it's on uh, Tumblr, I believe. Someone created a derailment bingo card, um, which I, I can send over to you so you can yeah, <laughs> post do, it. Do send that. But it is so interesting. I didn't even know... I didn't even know derailment was a thing that existed, um, but it had happened to me, and I just couldn't articulate what that was. And it happens as a an attorney all the time too, as a woman. Um, rather than dealing with the substance of what I'm arguing, you attack something else or you tone police. Um, if you don't agree with me, but you don't really have a response to the merits, you attack how I. Uh, how I'm presenting my argument or my opinion. So some of the uh, the bingo <laughs> options are you are damaging your cause by being so aggressive. Or if you weren't so hostile, people would listen to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as a woman, it's really, we have to tone police ourselves almost. And I encounter this as an attorney. Um, if I'm too aggressive or too direct, um, I, if I don't couch what I'm arguing or what I'm requesting in hedge words or, you know, if I say, if I say it too aggressively, um, that could be damaging. Uh, I could be labeled the B word. Whereas when a male attorney argues in the same manner, he's a champion. <laughs> he's a sure, great sure. legal scholar. Um, sure. it's, it's so interesting that as women, we have to kind of tone down, um, what we're saying and it happens to people of color as well. Um, I've read, uh, I read in, I want to say it was slate the other day. Um, the experience of a black man who was originally from London who moved to the U S and he was so surprised by how he was treated as a black man because he would act a certain way in London in a different context. And it would be treated, um, a completely different way in the U.S. Um, something as simple as asking for directions from a white couple. Um, granted, he was in rural Mississippi, so <laughs> there's that. But something as simple as approaching a white couple as a black man and asking for directions is deemed as a threat. So it's really interesting how th the words or the opinions that come from a woman or from a person of color are mediated um, and have to be toned down, so to speak, if we want to get our message across. Um, what were some of the other... Um, if you really cared about this, you'd teach me, which I think is interesting. Um, a lot of people on Twitter, I know I mentioned that I follow a lot of people of color on Twitter. I would never respond to someone I didn't agree with and demand that they give me a source or I guess a information about why they're stating this opinion. Right. Um, but apparently a lot of people do this <laughs> on social media and it's so interesting that someone would sit back and expect a person of color to educate a white person about, uh, racism or any, any issue police, uh, the police issues that have ar arisen in the past year. Well, I guess they've always been around, but you know, the ones that have More been prominent. in the media. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's really interesting that as a dominant um, culture person, whether in terms of gender or race, if you sit back and expect someone to educate you, um, oh, I, you should teach me about this. That's a derailment tactic. Um, so yeah, it's it, it a bit ironic too, because it's it's always the dominant culture that tells the minority or disenfranchised that if they would just. You know, if you just right. learn a new vocation or if you just learn to manage your money or if you just learn, you know what I'm saying? Right. It's funny how that 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 whole that whole thing gets shifted um, to where the the 
the disadvantaged person, or as, as uh, this article you sent me uh, by Christina Cleveland, the, the powerless person always seemed to be presumed upon as being responsible for the compelling action. Right. And, and that takes us to kind of a theological turn in in what we've been talking about. And, and since that interests you, and I know it does, I think maybe it would be a good place to kind of segue into talking about this really isn't necessarily solely about making these cultural observations and, and learning, uh, you know, uh, what intersectional uh, evaluation means or, you know, how derailment works on its own. These are all subjects that are in service to a deeper issue that really catch your attention. And it, it has to do with when people are marginalized in this way, it actually gives us something of a better connection with what's going on with Jesus than maybe coming at it from a position of power. Have I put that right? Right, right. yeah. I mean, I just, if you look at how Christianity itself started and how it started on the margins, um, it, it's, I think we have to be careful now that, um, or you have to be careful if you're from the dominant culture, how you address those on the margins, whether you listen to them, how you listen to them, because, I mean, the gospel start it's a mustard seed. I mean, you could be dismissing an idea that helps you as a member of the dominant culture, um, of the majority culture, that helps you um, understand scripture better or to have a, a, a better understanding of what the gospel means. Um, the, uh, sorry. No, that's a fantastic <laughs> illustration. I mean, that's a great point. You know, um, it really takes, uh, the command and control over interpretation out of my, uh, situatedness or out of the context in which I'm approaching. And it forces me to look beyond that. Right. Like if you look at, and again, credit to Ephraim Smith for bringing this up. He always brings up about how, um, so our Christian faith in the U S is oftentimes equated with, um, it's very Eurocentric. So a lot of our theology comes out of Europe and, um, we have a great love for, Theology is developed by European men. Um, so it's interesting that uh, if you want to bring up, you know, Southern, I guess, Southern Hemisphere theologians, you get more into the, uh, oh, what's it called? Liberation. Uh, liberation, yes. Mm-hmm. More of those. And at first glance, if you, if you read into that, you know, if you're someone who grew up in the U.S., in U.S. evangelicalism, and you read liberation theology, you're like, oh, that is... That's insane. Like that is, at least that was my reaction when I was thinking. I I just. Well, you got a point. In fact, in fact, I remember in college uh, and in in, in a certain uh, couple of seminary classes that, you know, liberation theology was always liberal theology. Right. And And so it was almost like taboo. Don't, you know, don't read that stuff. And then, you know, then you open up, uh, say, John Sabrino's Jesus the Liberator and you start reading that and you're going like, why would someone tell me not to read this? Right. Yeah. Well, and I didn't go to seminary, but I did go to a Christian college, so I can speak on this a little bit. But the danger becomes in you consider your theology as an American Christian race neutral or neutral. Correct. Like your point of reference is theology that came originally from Europe and everyone else is in reference to this European theology. And I think that's dangerous. That is, um, I, Soong, I believe it's Soong Chan Ra. He says that's the definition of white supremacy. And that's a really strong term to use. But I think it's really appropriate in this context because you're essentially asserting as a seminary student or as a pastor who, um, or a theologian who, you know, stays within this box of, of European theology, you're, essentially asserting that white or European ways of thinking are superior and are supreme to theologies that come from communities of color. And 
that's really dangerous. Um, I think we're missing out. We have the potential to miss out on a lot of very important things if we limit ourselves to uh, the Eurocentric uh, theologies. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and, And we could actually you know, talk about the variety of branches, for instance, that um, encompass liberation theology. We could talk about feminist theology and womanist theology. We could, you know, there are a number of those that, that to summarily dismiss them is actually, it's not far-fetched to refer to that as white supremacist. Um, it would make us terribly uncomfortable to use that particular vocabulary, but I bet it gets a few blog hits, so I'll probably use that on the... But I think that's the point is if you're never made to feel uncomfortable when you're studying scripture or trying to determine how to live out the Jesus's message in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, if you are, if you never feel uncomfortable, then you're missing something. And, and a lot of times I feel uncomfortable when, um, a person of color points out something about my faith, about my white dominated faith or my white church out in the suburbs. Um, but I have now really made an effort to push beyond that discomfort and really look at why this person is critiquing me or my faith in this way and, and what that means rather than summarily rejecting it. Oh, I think that's a, that's a great word. You know, ironically, I've got two books on the shelf uh, targeting uh, preachers. Interestingly enough, one of them is um, called Pew Rights, and uh, Van Horn talks about the the rights of the hearer, and so it really naturally stretches the the preacher to think about. Okay, well, you know, normally I'm only concerned about what I'm saying, and he's saying, no, no, there there's some rights that the, the folks have to hear. And then there's another fellow who wrote um, a book, little book called What Do They Hear? that even more poignantly gets to what you're describing, where he takes a couple of, um, well, he takes, for instance, the what we often hear referred to as the prodigal son. And he talks yeah. about teaching that in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and in Siberia. And basically just ask those, you know, ministerial students, to read that story and then talk about who the hero in the story is, talk about the implications for the story. To his utter amazement, in both Africa and in Siberia, the, the um, young, uh, younger son is actually the hero in the story. Wow. Now, you've never heard anyone likely in the United States in evangelical American Christianity, preach a message where the younger son was the hero. But in two cultures where the circumstances are incredibly different than our own, they're hearing something else going on in the text. And the fellow did not feel as though it was the right move to say, no, 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 let me explain what this means to you. Instead, he said, oh, because of someone's context, they're actually hearing something in that story that I'm missing. And that's right. what you're describing. You you listen to others, people of color, folks on the margins. You hear them talking about faith, and they're going to hear things you and I miss who are part of the majority culture. Right. That's why I really appreciate why. Um, I believe it's Scott McKnight. He specifically opens up space on his blog for um women to write and to he 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 gives up part of his platform to these women um and i feel like that as a result um there's a more robust uh theology because he is opening up um these other voices so yeah and we could we could actually tease one more thing out before our time's over and that is to say that the one question that, that came up in my last interview that, that you, you also raise um, really is um, a matter of uh, an ecclesiological perspective or a view of the church that McKnight has you know, moved into 
and Anglican communion. And there's a, a bit thicker ecclesiology, accountability, uh, a different kind of uh, relationship to, to, to tradition and community than, say, in a free church, low church context that tends to be more pioneering and individualistic. So when he starts practicing giving up space, it's actually part of this evolving move that he made out of a particular you know, free church tradition into another um, tradition that has a bit thicker ecclesiology. And that in, that's intentional, I think, as a consequence of, you know, the, the particular location you now find yourself in. Do you think that's a fair description? Oh, definitely. Um, so you're saying that Scott, um, he credits listening to these other voices? No, I'm, I'm saying I've watched that move. Uh, you know, he he uh, at one time, you know, taught some or went to, I know, um, Heibel's church. And uh, oh, it, uh, freak, that old thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and I remember hearing him in an interview talking to him actually one time in Philadelphia. And he was, he was telling uh, about, you know, that when he wasn't there, he was at this small... I believe it may be the, the church that he's now part of. Um, and he found more um, resonance, uh, both in terms of community and theology, in that move. And so, you know, he made that official um, last year, I think, or last year or two, you know, where he's actually part of, um, I think, the CSO4 diocese uh, in the Anglican Church. And um, and I think that that when you are in a um, church that gives attention and space to community as a priority over the individual, you may be formed better to open up space for more voices. Now, that's not to say that it doesn't happen in some American evangelical churches, but you actually, in the free church, you actually have to fight hard against that. I mean, right. to get to that, I should say, not against it, to get to that. Yeah, and I wonder if it has to do with, um, at least in my experience, low church centers um, their community around the actual church service on Sunday morning, which itself is centered on the message delivered by the pastor, whereas the center um, of an Anglican Anglican church or a high church is communion. Absolutely. And I wonder if that has something to do with it. Well, um, for my two cents, it does. And, uh, I would be an Anglo Baptist. <laughs> um, and, and so, uh, it, and, and I mean, Angli, A-N-G-L-I, uh, there's a fellow out in California that, that does that. And he, he, it's called Anglo Baptist, but he's talking about Anglican Baptist and that where the, the service would center on uh, on communion. I, I think that I think that is a, a subversive move for low church, free church, if they move in that direction, which is where we're slowly going. Right, and I I don't know. I'm just this is just off the top of my head, but it's just interesting that when you do level things out and you do have everyone at the foot of the cross taking the bread. Um, taking the wine as opposed to having the focus on one speaker um, who's, who's the one with the platform, who's giving a certain message. I think it is interesting that that um, focus on communion and having everyone at the foot of the cross, maybe that opens up more opportunities um, for those on the margins to participate um, in your faith community. Just a thought. <laughs> no, I think that's abs I think that does. I think that is the effect. Right. And and I I do think that that really is is one of the um, overreactions um, of some free church Protestant forms where they were trying to avoid any appearance of something they were protesting. So right. communion doesn't become. The center, the word becomes the center. And uh, I think that that does make 
make for some interesting formation, and, and I'm not afraid to say deformation um, in the sense of, of um, you know, how you value community and everybody's voice. Well, I tell you, we didn't get to go through it, but I'm going to post it because this is behind some of what we talked about. But for those of you listening, we'll, we'll post uh, uh, an article by Christina Cleveland, which set Natalie to thinking a bit uh, about some of what we have uh, talked about. And she has an article where she goes through the seven signs in the Gospel of John. And it's really, really good. And, um, um, and, and you ought to pay attention to it because this is actually, again, one way of hearing something in the text that you normally wouldn't, wouldn't hear. And, um, and so if you happen to be uh, preaching through the lectionary and you're still in John 6, uh, even though she covers way more than John 6, uh, she does include the feeding of the 5,000, you, you might find some helpful um, insights for preaching on that particular text if you're going to be there for the next few weeks. Yes, and Christine is definitely one to follow on Twitter and to add to your blog role to get to get some of those diverse voices in and get out of your comfort zone. So highly recommend her work. Well, excellent. And uh, Natalie, if you think of a couple others uh, in the next few days, send, send them over and we'll include those as part of the uh, you know, description of what we talk about and, and give some folks maybe a head start uh, on looking for some other voices to include in their blog role and and who to follow on Twitter and such. Definitely. Well, you know, I we could go on. You thought it would be trouble filling an hour. I think we probably could go another, but I want to respect your time and, and you're off work and at home. And, and so I want to thank you for uh, the time you gave. And um, I'm certain that we could make this a, 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 a regular feature as often as uh, we can, you know, not, not get too carried away with your schedule or your busy schedule. But this would be fun to do every now and then to check in and see, you know, what you're thinking and, and uh, uh, how some of these thoughts have evolved and maybe what else is on your mind. I would love that. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, uh, tell Manuel hello and uh, you take care. You too. Thanks. Well, thanks for listening. And remember, subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on Stitcher, and stay tuned for the next Pathological Podcast.